week afterwards. I was reading this week in preparation for the message about how often and for what reasons people tend to avoid going to the doctor. And the answer is more than we care to admit. And for this simple reason, why do people not want to go to the doctor? They're afraid of hearing bad news, right? Hello? I mean, if something is wrong, wouldn't you rather hear the bad news? But obviously not. I guess we just believe that the artery fairies come in in the middle of the night and they fix whatever cardiac episode is going on there. The, the most basic way to assess our physical health uh, I checked this out with the nurses at the first service. I should check with Harold at the second. But we have four vital signs, right, that we check for in assessing the basics of human health. They are temperature, pulse, blood pressure, and respiration. Those are the four that we check. And, and those who are in the ER, they check them all instantly, and they check them all rapidly. Those are the way that we assess somebody's immediate physical welfare. What we'd like to do starting this Sunday and for the next few weeks is to take the same kind of assessment tools and say if if the assessment of physical health is important, the neglect of spiritual health and vitality ought also to merit some consideration. So what would it take to check in on our physical health or on our spiritual health? That's the question for today. What is the state of our spiritual well-being? What's the state of your soul? What would God say about the trajectory of your, of your character or of your life? And so we've called the series Vital Signs. And we're going to look at the vital signs, not of your body, but of your soul. And in order to do that, we're going to turn to a classic passage in the Bible. So if you have your Bibles, open them up to the book of Acts in chapter 2 and find verse 42. And as you're finding that, let me tell you why this matters so much. There are people all around us, some of them might even be here in the room this morning, who are struggling with their physical health, heart disease, cancer, neurological problems, whatever they are. And if we found out that they were struggling and they were doing nothing about it in a very loving way, we would probably come alongside them and we would reprimand them for their complacency. You need to get that checked out. You need to do something about that. We care about you too much to see your physical health placed in such jeopardy. In the same way, there are people all around us, and and maybe some of them are even here today, whose spiritual lives are in disarray. They're ignoring God. They're, They're blowing off issues of character. They're headed down a road that could lead to eternal regret, and all the symptoms are there, but they just don't want to know. I mean, they don't want to go to the physician's office and get the bad report. For anyone who's courageous enough, I I want to challenge you this morning, not just to know what the vital signs are, but to actually monitor them in real time in your life and to do it starting today. And so my challenge for all of us today is that by the time we are done, that you would leave with a kind of clarity about your spiritual health, And that you would leave with a commitment to monitoring your spiritual fitness on a regular basis. That's why in the back of your program today, I'm going to ask you to flip it out. You have a little scale associated with each of those four vital signs. 
And I'm going to ask you, don't do it yet, but as we walk through the message, to put an X on the scale in the place that you think accurately conveys your own spiritual condition. Now let me give you a little warning here. You think people ever lie when they go to the doctor? <laughs> Turns out it's common knowledge among the medical community that people lie when you ask them about how they're doing. They tend to drink more than they'll admit to. They tend to exercise less than they claim to. They'll lie about their weight even when they know there's a scale right there in the corner and they're going to have to step on it and say, oh, my my scale must be calibrated differently than, than yours is. When you're assessing yourself, this is just between you and God. Nobody else gets to see it, right? So no peeking at the person next to you. No peeking. But try not to lie because here's the thing. I mean, God already knows. I don't think God is going to be up there looking down, thinking, oh my goodness, that's where you place the X? I had no idea. Yeah. So here's where we get the four vital signs. Acts chapter 2, verse 42. In the Bible, just after Jesus died and was resurrected, just after Easter weekend, God sends down the Holy Spirit 50 days out from that, that world-changing event. That's why we call it Pentecost, 50 days. The Spirit of God descends on his people in power, and for the first time is born into the world this remarkable cluster of human beings, the church. And it turns out that the book of Acts, here in the second chapter, contains these four defining characteristics that indicated spiritual vitality among that early group of Christ followers, the church. They function for the early church like pulse and blood pressure, and respiration and temperature. These were the vital signs. And so this is how the author puts it. Acts chapter 2, verse 42. You have it open? They, the early church, devoted themselves to, and here they are, the apostles' teaching, and to fellowship, to the breaking of bread, and to prayer. And I want you to note this one distinction in the text that's going to help us kind of anchor the assessment process. We're told that those early followers of Jesus devoted themselves to those practices. Devoted. There's a huge difference between dabbling and devoted. So let me put it like this. We did this in the early service. So Edmund's going to turn around and watch you. How many of you at some point in your life took piano lessons? Just by sure, there they look at them all. Look at them all. Uh, now, how many of you would say that as part of your piano lessons, that you were so gripped by the artistry and the musicianship of the piano, that you were so committed to mastering that instrument, that you devoted yourself, you never watched the clock, you never skipped a day of practice, you never skipped the scale, that, that you were committed to doing the lessons until you would achieve mastery, and that's why you are the pianistic genius that you are today, right? Yeah, good one. <laughs> How many of you just dabbled in the piano? <laughs> there we are. To dabble means that we do something when it's convenient, when we're in the mood, when we've got some time to kill, we'll just, we'll dabble in it. Much of the spirituality in the 21st century in North America, you could describe as dabbling. Not so in the early church. 
These were people who were convinced that through Jesus Christ, through his teaching, through his way of life, through his sacrificial death and his victorious resurrection, through, through his presence in their lives, they were convinced that they could live in the character and the power of God and that that was really the offer of a lifetime for them. And this is what they wanted more than anything else. So they made it a way of life, this way of Jesus. Long before they were Christians, the New Testament has this interesting little anecdote. Before they were called Christians, they were called people of the way. They were defined by a way of living, a way of following. People of the way. And they sacrificed for that way. And they devoted themselves to that way. And and they did it with joy. So we're going to walk through these vital sign assessments. And as we walk through each of them, I'm going to ask you to place an X somewhere on that scale between dabbling and devotion. Okay? Here's the first of the vital signs. The apostles' teaching. Am I meeting God in the Bible on a regular basis? That's the question. We're told that those early followers devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching. That teaching has come down to us where? Here, in the Bible. Particularly in the, in the New Testament. When the New Testament was, was being assembled under the, under the inspiration of God by leaders in the early church, one of, if not the primary criteria for for a book being included in what becomes the New Testament is, can it be traced to the teachings of an apostle? Was it written by one of that original group who knew him, who lived with them, who loved him, who walked with them? Or was it written uh, by a community of people that were around that person transcribing those words? This is the testimony of the apostles. And what the apostles loved to talk about and write about more than anything else was Jesus. They didn't really get derailed with a lot of other religious conversation. They wanted to talk about Jesus. They were gripped by him. They were obsessed by the unmatched wisdom of his teaching and by the compelling example of the way that he lived. They were obsessed with that world-shattering reality of the cross and the resurrection. They were devoted to this man, not because they thought that God was going to give them some sort of gold star for paying attention, not because they were under some sense of obligation, and not because they think they're going to get in trouble or, or feel guilty if they didn't do it. They, they studied the apostles' word because they met in this book a man who offered them a confidence for life, a hope beyond death, like nothing else in the world. And I have to tell you that when, when somebody is fully alive, to the presence of God. They love the wisdom of God's word. They love the comfort of it. They, they want the words to get into their heads so that when they're in trouble, they automatically think, the Lord is my shepherd. And when they wake up, they automatically think, this is the day the Lord has made. We will and glad in it. And when they're insulted, they automatically think, turn the other And when somebody cuts them off on the highway, they automatically think, get thee behind me, Satan, or whatever. (laughs) But, But there's always a thought that is rooted in this book. And here's the idea. There's something that's always running through your head. You know how I know? Karina tells me. There's always something running through your head, right? 
If it's not going to be scripture, what is it going to be? What would you rather it be? We get lax. We get really casual about this. What are we filling our minds with? Now, to be clear, this vital sign is not, do you believe that the Bible is the word of God? A lot of people believe that about it, but they never actually read it. They have these beautiful leather-bound Bibles, imprinted and monogrammed, that sit collecting dust on their shelves. The, the Barna Research Group, who, who exists to do these research studies into the, the spiritual life of the church in our generation, they did a study about this, and they concluded that the vast majority of North Americans still believe that the Bible is the Word of God. But, they said, 60% of people when asked couldn't name even one of the Ten Commandments. That one out of three who claim to follow Jesus cannot name the Gospels that record his life. Matthew, Mark, Luke, John. Good, just checking. 75% of us believe that the saying, God helps those who help themselves, can be found in Scripture. It's Ben Franklin, by the way. Don't go looking for it. 12%, this is amazing, 12% believe that Joan of Arc was the wife of Noah. I'm not making that up. <laughs> Mrs. Noah, Joan of Arc. When somebody is being animated by the Spirit of God, when they have a vision for what life can look like with Jesus, they want to meet him in the pages of this book. They're curious about the things that he said. They're interested about the things that he did. And they'll memorize passages of the Bible, not to show off to other people, but because they want that as part of the mental furniture of their life. You take possession of a new house. You move in. One of the very first things you want to do is put nice furniture in there. What about your mind? How are you furnishing your mind? Your home is temporary. Your mind is eternal. And again, we're assessing ourselves. When people are dabbling on this vital sign, they have a way of neglecting the Bible or or avoiding the Bible, or maybe they're afraid if they read it, it's going to make them feel guilty, or, or they just want, don't want to, or it seems boring, or they just have something better to do. And they get careless about what they're feeding their mind. I don't want to challenge us in this area. And I want especially to challenge our young people in this area. Not because you're any more or less culpable in it, but because you have the opportunity at a young age to set in motion patterns that will follow you for the rest of your life. I was reading some remarks by the president of a Christian college this week. Really cool. He said he's so encouraged by this generation of students. He said their commitment to compassion, the way they love justice, the way they want to be active on the planet, the way they want to make a difference, the way they hate phoniness, all of these things, he said, are tremendously admirable things. But, he said, I have this one huge concern. They don't know the Bible. We're raising, he said, a generation of young people who want to love Jesus, who name the name of Jesus, but they don't actually know the book in which we meet him. And their minds are being shaped by other sources. I expect it's true not just of the emerging generation, but of their predecessors. They learned it from us. So everybody, paper's out now. Where are you on this vital sign? Are you devoted? 
Do you have a plan in place for regularly reading the Bible? Are you carrying that plan out? Do you meditate on it regularly, memorize chunks of it? When is the last time you decided to do something in your life because God explicitly commands it in the pages of his word? Where would you place your X on that line? And as you do that, maybe you're thinking, boy, it's, it's time to try something new, a, a fresh new way of engaging with the Bible. A couple of years ago as a church, we committed to reading through the Bible cover to cover over the course of a year. Remember, those of you who were here? For some of you, it was a fresh experience. For most of us, it was challenging. It was a challenging year. But that was two years ago. What are you doing these days? That's the first of the vital signs. Am I meeting God regularly in the Scriptures? Here's the second, fellowship. Is God at work in my life transforming my relationships? Relationships are not easy. It turns out there's this really deep connection between our spiritual health and our relational health. What we say we believe about God maps directly into the relationships in our lives. That's one of the things we're learning so fervently on Monday nights in the Emotionally Healthy Relationships course. That you cannot claim to be spiritually mature and have the relationships of your lives in complete disarray. The two are absolutely connected. Jesus' most famous saying about relationships, so brief and so brilliant that it came to be known simply as the golden rule, was this. In everything that you do, do unto others as you would have them do unto you. This, he said, sums up the entirety of the law and the prophets. In Acts chapter 2, the formation of this new little community, the church, the Holy Spirit comes down and they invented what might be called a golden rule community. Rich and poor, Jews and Gentiles, male and female, every race, every language, all together. And they took this really seriously. When a person is healthy spiritually, it will be a top priority for them to have relationships with brothers and sisters where they can be real where they can be authentic as they talk about the things that are going on in their life. Temptations. Where they'll confess, listen, I messed this up. In this place, I've, it's, just, it's in disarray. And here's where I went wrong with my, with my money or my anger or my sexuality, and I need help. This is where people will say, these are my values. This is what I claim to believe about finances or about prayer or family or intimacy. Will you hold me accountable? Will you ask me, how is it going? Let's define the ends of the scale, dabbling and devotion. When people are just dabbling in these areas, let me give you one example. When they're just dabbling, they will choose to associate with other believers sporadically and only on the basis of convenience. They're going to avoid getting really close to people. You'll know them because they will appear and disappear here with such incredible speed that you won't even catch their shadow as they run out the back door, lest they meet somebody and form a lasting connection. When people are dabbling, they get casual about gathering for other, with other believers in, in worship or in small groups. Last Sunday, last Sunday, our attendance was just shy of 600 
And, and, and numbers aside, what, what a stirring experience it was to experience the power of God through the testimony of his people. And it was incredible. Fast forward a week. I mean, here you are. Thank you for coming back. You never know the Sunday after Easter, are they going to come back? And here you are. But we're not 600. 350, I don't know, 400. But we're not six. And, and church leaders will say, what? Was it not good enough last week? What, what happened? And here's what happened. People came last week for all kinds of reasons. Some of them really good reasons. You invited them. Did anybody invite a friend that came last week? Thank you for doing that. Fantastic. Some came because they're motivated by a genuine, spiritually driven search to try and understand. And you came, and and I'm glad you didn't. Maybe you came back. And if you came back, uh, thank you again for coming back. But the vast majority of the gap between this week and last week is accounted for by Christian CEOs who were present last week And we won't see them again until Christmas. CEOs, Christmas and Easter only, right? Uh, CEOs. Uh, In fact, I was reading this week about Jewish brothers and sisters. Same phenomenon. They talk about H2O believers. High holy days, H2 only. H2O believers. Seems this is a multi-faith issue. When people are spiritually healthy on the relationship, on the vital sign, they keep short accounts and they're committed to being together. Short accounts. The Apostle Paul said, in your anger, don't sin. Don't let the sun go down while you're still angry. And don't give the devil a foothold in your life like this. Notice, Paul doesn't say Christians shouldn't get angry. In fact, one of the worst ways to handle anger is to pretend that you're not angry. I grew up with a mix of Dutch, German, and British ancestry. We never said we were angry. We'd say, I'm upset or I'm hurt, or if things were really bad, we'd say, I'm fine. I'm fine. And then I got married. And I I married someone who's far better at articulating her feelings than I am, and we're still figuring that one out, aren't we, honey? One of the classic examples of keeping short accounts is from this amazing Christian couple Charlie and Martha Shedd. He was a Presbyterian minister for over 50 years and wrote lots of books about relationship and family, amusing, insightful. And he wrote about one time, he said that he and his wife Martha, they'd had this big argument and she left him a note on the kitchen table that read, Dear Charlie, I hate you. Love, Martha. (laughs) Those short accounts. When the Holy Spirit is really at work in somebody's life, they become devoted to the keeping of short accounts. They do relationships differently. And so lingering resentment and sarcastic shots across the bow, silent withdrawal or, or deep contempt and judgment, they, just, they don't want to live with any of that anymore. And it's not that they're relationally perfect, not at all, but they're devoted to setting things right. And so they regularly ask God through the Holy Spirit, said, would you guide me in my relationships? You find them saying things like, I'm sorry, and and speaking the words, I forgive you, with great frequency. So it's honesty time. Where does your ex go on that scale? 
Are you devoted to fellowship, to community, to accountability? Devoted to forgiveness? Or, or honestly, are you, are you still kind of dabbling in some of those areas? Make your mark. Here's the third of the vital signs. Am I communicating continually with God? Prayer. Here's what the Apostle Paul says marks the prayer life of a spiritually vital person. Rejoice always, he says in Thessalonians. Pray continually. Give thanks in all circumstances. This is God's will for you in Christ Jesus. In Acts chapter 2, that that cluster of, of young believers... They were devoted to prayer, which means that they were involved in this continual, interactive, participative engagement with God. They knew that that's how you receive grace. That's how you live by grace. It comes by being deeply rooted in God. And and people prayed. They prayed when they were together. They prayed when they were alone. They, they prayed at the start of the day. They prayed at the end of the day. They prayed when they were in trouble, and they were in trouble a lot. And they prayed when they were blessed just to express their gratitude. Why did they devote themselves to prayer? Not because it was an obligation. Not, again, because they thought they were getting some gold star on a chart up in heaven. And not to show that they were spiritually, spiritually gifted people. They were convinced that they were not in control of the universe. They were convinced, unlike people in our day in the GTA, that self-sufficiency and self-reliance are not, in the end, a good strategy for life. Just the opposite. They were convinced that God exists, that God listens, that God cares, and that God responds. And so they talked to him all the time. They were committed to prayer. You understand that people who are spiritually alive have this conviction that the deepest intimacy with God is born when they are on their knees. Ask people who've been through a great tragedy in life. They've, they've lost a spouse. They've been diagnosed with cancer. They've watched a dream crumble. They've... They've lost a job. They'll tell you that there's something that happens in prayer that doesn't happen anywhere else. You'll find them saying things like, I, I had this, this settled sense of peace and I couldn't understand it and I can't explain it to you, but I just knew that I wasn't alone. And so it is that in prayer, people receive wisdom and strength and encouragement, guidance, forgiveness. They know that they're loved with a love that no human power can provide. And I have to tell you this, for people who are spiritually healthy, who don't dabble in prayer, who don't, uh, who don't let the beginning of the day pass without saying thank you, God, and don't greet the end of the day without saying thank you again. For people who are deep in, in that rooted connection with God, there is a buoyancy to life that allows them to somehow crest along even when the waves are steady and high. And for those of you who who don't pray regularly, have trouble connecting the dots in your life, what's happening? Where is God in all of this? Their first instinct is always going to be, 
how can I solve this problem on my own? And they don't pray. Or if they do pray, they only pray when there's a crisis that they can't solve anymore on their own. And if they don't get the answer to their prayer in the way they expect, immediately they're prepared to dismiss the whole thing. What they don't do is persist in prayer the way that Jesus modeled and the way that he taught. Jesus said persist in prayer like someone who's knocking on the door of a neighbor. You're standing there. You're not going away until they answer. We do that humanly. We do that even if our neighbor might not have a great heart. We do it more so with God. Jesus would say it's like a widow. She's going to keep going back to the judge and appealing her case, and she's just going to appeal and appeal until she wears that judge down. She persists even though she, she knows that that judge might not have a great heart. But God has a great heart. And so people persist in prayer. Dabblers don't do that. They just forget. Time to write again. Honestly, where does the X go? Place your mark on the scale. And then here's the last of the vital signs. In Acts 2, they called it the breaking of bread. Am I sharing my life with others? In that Acts 2 church, there was a radically different and new way of doing life. Breaking of bread refers to sharing meals together, to sharing your time and your possessions together. It's not a reference to the Lord's Supper. I mean, they did that too. But, but that, that's not the reference here. The, the Lord's Supper wasn't called the breaking of bread for at least another century. This is living life together. And they did this. In a world that valued hospitality, they broke the mold of hospitality because they valued it just as high. But they said, hospitality isn't extended just to your own family. That was the rules of the world. In the tribe, oh, we're all tight and clingy and what's mine is yours. Outside the tribe, you're nothing to me. And so the Holy Spirit gets a hold of this group of people and they begin to treat complete strangers like family. Treat people who are different from them, from other tribes. People who are of no strategic use to them whatsoever. They began to welcome them and share what they had and they opened up their table. They shared food. They would take property that they had and they'd sell it and they'd use the proceeds to disperse among people who didn't have anything. People who were spiritually alive will devote themselves to this stuff. They'll want to know. They'll want to know what what are the spiritual gifts that God has given to me and how do I use these gifts not primarily for my own fulfillment or for my own career or my own advancement but so that God can benefit the body of believers and the community to which the church is sent. And no kidding, you'll find them saying, and you've probably heard it around here, it's a privilege to serve. Really? It's a privilege to serve. You'll find them with no spotlight whatsoever, visiting somebody all alone in the hospital. Or adopting a young person in one of our student ministries who's just really struggling with high school. We're going on a short-term mission trip to Bolivia or to the Philippines to see what God is doing in the rest of the world. And instead of just dabbling when they feel like it, they'll have a systematic plan for how to invest their time and their money. Tithing, generosity. They experience the joy and the faith that that comes in knowing that God is at work 
in your financial life and in your calendar. People who are spiritually alive, they walk through their days looking for those those spirit-prompted opportunities to serve with the same exuberance and joy and energy as somebody who's, who's playing Pokemon Go. Remember that game? It's, it's kind of passed a little bit, but this time last year, it was crazy. Uh, some of you have no idea what I'm talking about, right? But July of, of 2016, I think, this thing launched. And by the beginning of 2017, there were millions and millions of players all across the country. And you could always see them because they're looking at their phone, but they're walking around in real time because what the phone is doing is it's mapping images of the real world. It's mapping onto them this augmented reality, these little characters. And your goal in the game is to catch them. See, this is me testing out whether you played the game. Catch them all, right? Catch them all. You'd find cars camped out in the craziest of places because it's a field that's ripe with these characters. You'd find people wandering around the streets bumping into things because they're not looking at the real world. They're looking at the virtual world trying to catch them all. There was even a picture posted on Facebook of a husband playing Pokemon Go, Go Ashley, while she was delivering their child. <laughs> augmented reality it was fascinated for people you see the real world but you see more than what's there people in acts chapter 2 were entering into a kind of augmented reality same old world maybe same job same street same office but but suddenly god is everywhere opportunities are everywhere God's love and care and, and power become the foundation for their lives. So they're, they're playing their own version of Jesus Go. And the motto is to bless them all. Wherever they saw an opportunity, they would try and engage. Uh, they were disciples who lived with that kind of augmented reality. Folks, if, if all we're doing is sitting inside here, if God isn't using us so that under-resourced people and, and forgotten people and, and unemployed families dealing with the crippling burden of debt and hungry children just trying to stay awake at school or refugees who've arrived here with nothing, folks who are despised because of the color of their clothes or their skin or their accent, if, if we're not connected to what's out there, Nobody will care what's being said inside our buildings. People who are spiritually healthy, they do that. It's their own version of Jesus Go. Next week we're going to look at financial vital signs. I can't wait to give that message. No, really. (laughs) Right now I want to invite you one last time to take a look where you stand on this week's vital signs and ask yourself again just between you and God where would you place the X on this final criteria and as you do that as you glance through the rest of the sheet I hope you'll recognize that this isn't a self-improvement project you don't have to do this yourself you shouldn't do it yourself Jesus is the one who started the church, Acts 2. 
it was his life, his example, his death and resurrection, his spirit at work in people that allowed them to do this. This is a Jesus improvement project, not a self-improvement project. And, and just to avoid any sense of loftiness, devotion doesn't mean perfection. It just means that we surrender our lives one moment at a time. As I was reading Acts chapter 2 this week, I was wondering when, when people look at our church, at MCBC, what verb would they use? Devoted? Dabble? Uh, when they look at me, what adjectives would they use? He's a dabbler? He's committed? I want to tell you this because these are the sort of things you're not likely to hear outside the doctor's office. We will tell you, or we live in a culture that will tell you that, that you devote yourself to your own success, uh, to your own happiness, to your own life, to your own ego. These are the things worthy of attention. And you dabble with God. The great danger for most of us isn't that we've turned our back on God or that we deny Him or reject Him. It's that we dabble. And we think that's enough. As your pastor, I have to tell you this, that Jesus never came to anyone and said, would you dabble with the idea of following me? There's this stirring phrase that comes in the 12 steps. Are you familiar with that? It's the Christian response to dealing with addictions. 12 steps says half measures availed us nothing. We stood at the turning point. We asked for His protection and care and we did so with complete abandon. That was the only way for them to receive the power necessary to transform life, to become sober. And it came from the teaching and from the way of Jesus. Here we are, a week out of Easter. We're not here because God is severe or strict, but I hope because that's the nature of life in His kingdom, that, that we want to be here. Half measures avail us nothing. We stand at the turning point. We ask for His protection with complete abandon. That can be you. I hope it is. It can be me. And I'm going to pray for us both. Lord, make this a moment of honesty for us. We can stand authentically before You, devoid of all pretension, not having to wear a mask and, and claim to achieve something that we've not achieved or be someone that we've not become. Take us as we are and where we are. And wherever we've placed our mark on the page, God, we know that you're not content to leave us as we are. Would you move us this week just one more notch in the direction of devotion? 
whatever it takes, Lord. Would you provide the opportunity to see in the world opportunities to serve? God, would you, would you place in our hands a copy of the Bible that we want to open and the desire to read the engaging stories of Jesus? Would you set aside in our lives those appointed times in the morning and the evening throughout the day? We just cannot wait to enjoy a few blissful moments of communion with our Father in prayer. And God, would you place us day by day, and not just Sundays, in close communion with our brothers and sisters here in the life of your church. God, we want to be all in. No more dabbling. All for Jesus we surrender. And all to him we freely give. Amen.